Потом что мама есть? Моя мама Finding the right jeans is hard. Accepting your jeans is even harder. Whether you wear boyfriend or bootcut, high-rise or low-rise, this podcast will teach you to love the jeans you are in. I'm Rachel. And I'm Tina. And we're going to use modern research to bust diet myths and get real about body after baby. We're going to take you on a journey of unpacking your old beliefs about food and weight so you can learn to nourish your body and raise body-confident kids. So put your booty in a chair and let's talk mom jeans. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode on Mom Jeans, and we are in the Myth Busters series. Today we are unpacking the concept of intuitive eating by looking at this anti-diet message from an angle of accessibility. While intuitive eating is one of the cornerstones of the anti-diet methodology and has great underlying message of making peace with food with your body and peace with food, we want to unpack the limitations to it and shine on the food accessibility and the racism that is inherent in diet culture. So the myth we are busting today is healing one's relationship with food simply means healing from diet culture and learning to honor your body. We are going to give you a little background on this myth, and then we are honored to welcome Shelby Gordon to help us bust this myth even further. The messages about food freedom in our culture usually surround letting go of the diet mentality, learning to honor your hunger and fullness, and respecting your body's genetic blueprint. While these are highly helpful concepts for those who have access to a variety of food options and have struggled with yo-yo dieting their entire lives, And we have seen many clients learn to honor their bodies and make peace with food due to these principles. But learning to eat with complete body attunement is not simple or accessible for so many who have a complex relationship with food due to trauma, poverty, systemic oppression, and more. So it is important that we always check our privileges and increase our empathy and advocacy so that healing is not individualistic but systemic. The reason we are busting this myth about intuitive eating being a global method for healing one's relationship with food is because the term has become so trendy and overly used lately, which has taken away from the focus of its key principles, the audience it is intended for, and ignored the fact that rejecting diet culture and finding body attunement can come for people without intuitive eating or is just not accessible for all. Social media and the many, let's face it, white therapists and dietitians, not to mention body coaches and nutritionists, have taken this principle and used it to sell food and body peace for all, and the theory has become way too mainstream. Therefore, the common misnomers of intuitive eating that have developed are that it is simple. Eat when you are hungry, stop when you are full. Eat what you crave, and the craving will leave you. Honor your hunger, and you will learn satisfaction. But this ignores a major part of the population. 
Yeah, I mean, what about those who do not have access to the foods they crave? Or who needs to choose paying their rent over buying the foods they crave? Or even more realistic, only being able to afford the very foods that diet culture labels bad and unhealthy because they are lower cost than the organic foods that diet culture worships. Or what about those who would love to accept their body's genetic blueprint, but live in a racist and homophobic culture that constantly oppresses them for their body? What about those who experience abuse and struggle with connecting to their body without being triggered with horrific visceral memories? Is healing not possible for them? Are they just doing it wrong because they aren't eating intuitively? Our thoughts are obviously no, absolutely not. Simplifying anyone's relationship to food, both from a fad diet perspective of try this and you'll lose weight, to even the anti-diet perspective of just honor your hunger and cravings, are a massive disservice to everyone who is learning their own unique relationship with their food, body, and gender identity in a society that is hell-bent on sticking with white, cisgendered, heteronormative messaging. We want to shine a light on the fact that this oversimplified message shared by so many white professionals is not being inclusive to the communities that are hurting. Unemployment and poverty impacts our country, and now, thanks to COVID, the U.S. hit a high of 15% unemployment rate in 2020, severely impacting access to food and resources, as you will hear our guests discuss today. Yeah, the bottom line is that dieting itself is a privilege, and intuitive eating is a privilege, and that healing from dieting is a privilege, and all are individualistic. Healing a relationship with food needs a community angle, feeding one another, providing for one another, honoring one another's needs and perspectives, changing the societal messaging, offering access to resources to all, and shifting from a capitalistic, individualistic perspective to a communal one where is where true healing will occur. So, should we bust this myth? Oh, let's do it. Woo! Shelby Gordon is a retired world champion professional dieter who broke the chains of restriction, excessive exercise, and body hatred by embracing body trust. She now works with helping professionals and organizations ignite their awareness of the intersection of insidious systemic racism and dehumanizing diet culture. By day, Shelby is a marketing manager for a museum in Balboa Park, San Diego, and an adjunct professor at two local universities. She is an awesome daughter, prolific social media disruptor, and future puppy owner. Yes, let's get to it. Okay, well, welcome everybody to this week's episode of Mom Jeans. What we really want to touch on is what if you don't have the same access, the same privilege, the same equity that other individuals have? And so is intuitive eating accessible for everyone? Is this possible for everyone? So we are going to bust that myth. And today we have Shelby Gordon on the episode to help us bust this myth. So, hey, Shelby. Hey there. Good to see you all. And um, I think a year ago, this myth would have been harder to bust. But since we've now, I'm on my third lockdown in San Diego, we've been inside the house for nine, 10 months and uh, because of the virus. 
And I don't know about where y'all live, but where I live in San Diego, we are seeing tremendous lines for food banks and food distribution. So it has spun my, defi my definition of intuitive eating to it's, in it's intuitive to survival. It's intuitive to just basic, like basic necessity. We're just trying to get people fed here right now. So um, it really has changed my perception. The other way that it's changed it is I think that we now know how fragile the economy is and that people are just you know, a paycheck or two away, or if they lose their job, or if they lose their ability to go to their job, or if their job is no longer there, then everything is in question, including how they're able to nourish and feed their family. So intuitive eating for me now has changed definitions for a couple of reasons. I want to circle back and see if you can tell our listeners who you are and like I feel the passion, but why you are passionate about coming on and busting this myth with us. Well, I am um, born and raised in San Diego. I'm the only child of two really badass kids who are currently 82 and 86 and they are you talk about preschool drop off that's my life over here you know keeping my dad in the house and off the ladder hanging christmas lights that's my challenge right now. um i um am a marketing manager for our museum here and um i also teach at two universities and I also had a anti-racism consulting business blow up after George Floyd was murdered. My passion is I'm a, a black woman of size. I'm, you know, cis head single. Um, I don't think that I'll get married till I go to the assistant living home. And I will wear white at my wedding, just know that. Um, and I read an article popped up, it's probably been about 10 years ago, and a researcher out of the London School of Economics had done scientific research that said um, Black women were the least attractive women on earth. He had done scientific research that said that. And I was like, okay, now wait a minute, wait, wait just a minute now, wait a minute. And that got me digging into the whole um, scientific piece of culture. And I was still um, very, very, very um, deep in diet culture. Um, I was dieting hard and it took up 80% of my bandwidth and my brain. At the time I was working for Disney had worked for Disney for 14 years. So I had a big old corporate job, right? But 80% but of my brain bandwidth was taken over by me trying to change my body. So once I officially retired from dieting, I really started thinking about how I got there 
why it took up so much space. And I'm a natural researcher and I work at two universities. So I have access to two university libraries. Then I really started getting into it and understanding um, a deeper understanding of eugenics and race science. And then Dr. Sabrina Strings wrote her book, Fear of the Black, Fear of the Black Body. And that's where it all came together for me. Uh, the racist history of fat phobia how we are impacted by diet culture today. Um, a really unusual niche in my business is um, eating disorder treatment for Black women. Um, I've never had a disor eating disorder. I had 50 years of disordered eating, but I was, was not uh, um, a patient of, of an eating disorder. But I'm passionate about these black women getting diagnosed and getting proper treatment and then being able to um, recover and maintain. Um, and then you compound being a woman of size, being diagnosed with an eating disorder and then getting treatment. And then, so that's where I am right now. Just, I, I work a lot with eating disorder treatment organizations and professionals. Um, I really am a town crier. I also call myself a gadfly about, you know, racist diet culture and that um, white providers need to either know a black woman who's doing this work or have access to resources so that no harm is done. Um, so luckily I um, tapped into Body Trust with um, Dana and Hillary. And um, that was a concept that clicked in my brain. I had dieted for too long and too hard to ever love my body. I will not ever love my body. Um, I will never have peace with my body. Peace is a, a reverent concept for me, but I trust my body. I trust it to tell me what I want to eat, when I, when I should eat, how much I should eat, is it too hot or too cold, is it too spicy or not spicy, you know, I, I have gained a lot of a body trust. I'm still developing my body story, which is complex with ancestral trauma, and um, my uh, chief weight stigmatizer is my mother who is horrifically fat phobic. So those were messages that came to me as a child. And so for all you moms out there, please watch what you say to your, your children because um, to unravel that, I had a therapist, a nutritionist, a primary care physician, a bioidentical physician, an acupuncturist, an herbalist, and a hypnotist to unravel that, that mess in my head. Um, so that, that's where it comes from. It, there's a tremendous need in the nutrition, dietary, eating disorder, solar system for voices of color and voices of uh, uh, marginalized audiences to have their, have their issues heard 
have their nuances heard, have their nuances addressed, um, provide information where people say there is none. Yes, there is. You just need to know where it is and have the will to find it. And I'm also musting, uh, busting myths about, you know, the dietary habits of Black people. I'm guessing in all your research, I love that you have that component of it. You probably at some point stumbled upon the intuitive eating book that came out in 1995 and then the multiple editions that came out after. I'm curious what your thoughts were as you absorbed all these different pieces of science and all these different articles. And then here comes this book and here comes now this trendy concept. How did how did this concept of intuitive eating filter for you? It does it. I'm black. I think, and again, I, I come from a place of privilege. I grew up in Southern California um, in the 80s. So Farrah Fawcett, Cheryl Ladd, you know, I didn't have my first black doll until I was seven. Everything around me was white and blonde. My utter hatred for Barbie was something else that that whole tribe of professionals had to help me unwrap. I, I, I was involved with diet culture at a different level, right? I had a big corporate job with big corporate benefits and a big corporate um, flexible spending account. And that paid for everything from the acupuncturist to the hypnotist. I know as, as you were saying that, I'm like, ooh, that, that's tough to access, right? Like that, that's a lot yeah, exactly. of money. That, yeah, I had, a, I had a juice coach. I cried through workouts. I mean, I literally wept through workouts. Like, so I'm coming from a tremendous place of privilege, right? Um, and I think that the intuitive eating philosophy is, is for precious few Black people because they don't have exposure to it. And I, I would go as far as saying if a, a well-known Black personality or um, authority or spokesperson um, could embrace that and, and ethnize it, I think a lot more Black people would embrace it. That's the sad part about Oprah, right? She is, she is even more traumatized than I am. She's the most traumatized dieter I think I know. We're even more traumatized than me. But think about what she could do if, you know, or somebody like her could do if that message was modified and um, customized for, um, for Black folks. It could, one, go a long way in helping a lot of Black people understand the diet culture that they've been susceptible to. It can help them also understand the healthcare bias that they're susceptible to and not getting proper treatment and diagnosis just based on their race and certainly based on their race and their weight. I think it could go a long way. 
Yeah, so I, I'm wanting to kind of dig a little bit deeper because I, you know, I'm passionate about bringing more awareness and education to people of privilege, right? I think that that's how we grow and just really challenge internalized fat phobia, really support anti-racism, all by admitting I don't know everything and I'm open to learning and changing my the unknowns. So with that, I want to dive a little bit deeper into how is it that if intuitive eating concept and these principles of eating what you want, when you want, with body attunement, honoring your hunger, honoring your fullness, how could that possibly be harmful? Can you speak to more of that? Because it goes against everything that we've been trained. You know, diet culture only teaches us about restriction. Diet culture only teaches us about no, and that our bodies are bad and we need to change. We need to restrict and we need to exercise excessively. We need to walk 10,000 steps a day and drink 64 ounces of water a day. We don't eat after seven o'clock, six o'clock, five o'clock, four o'clock. We eat, you know, three main meals. And I mean, it, it intuitive eating is against everything that we've been taught. And I think that's the hardest part about divorcing diet culture is retraining your brain and retraining your your intuition about how you should eat it's about retraining all of that so i think that's why it's difficult um i had a whole discussion the other night well not a discussion but in action with my mother the other night she said now remember she's my chief weight stigmatizer She's the one that put the fat phobic ideas about my six-year-old body in my head that I have been dealing with for 50 years. We were talking about putting the putting leftovers up. And um, she said something about, well, you know, you shouldn't eat after seven o'clock. It's that's bad for you. And I just said, no, it's not. And she said, yes, it is. And I said, no, it's not. And so it is, you know, retraining your brain to, you know, I, I wish, and I say this all the time, I wish I could pull my ear back, right? And find a little microchip slot and pop in the intuitive eating chip there, right? All the information, all the intuition, all the, you know, the the meditations, all of the verification, all of the soothing, all of that. But we don't have it like that. So we have to retrain our brain. And for some of us, you know, particularly me who dieted so hard for so long, um, it's still a process for me to uh, click in the new thinking and the new programming. So it sounds like the biggest challenge is learning how to give yourself some grace and flexibility considering the rules and the rigidity of diet culture, which is going to be very hard for parents to navigate, especially because they have been taught by their parents or the generations above them all the diet culture 
rules. And then their kids are coming home from school with all of the diet culture bullshit that's being taught in health class. So I'm wondering how parents can support themselves in navigating this concept of intuitive eating or, or navigate even this concept that intuitive eating is easy or easily accessible so that they can work on this, their relationship with food and work on this for their family. Well, I, I don't think it can be done without community. I mean, th- these are pretty, in some cases, radical changes that parents are making. Um, and, and it's outside the norm. It's outside the normative. It's outside the peer group. So finding community, um, finding podcasts like yours, finding um, educators who specialize with children and tweens and teens, um, it particularly is vital. Um, when I went searching for my therapist, I wanted a body image therapist, um, specifically who did not focus on eating disorders. And I just Googled and Googled and Googled and Googled until I found somebody. And I, and, you know, that, um, that person to talk to. And now I have community, right? I have my body trust community. Um, I have 8,000 Instagram followers who, you know, right on Shelby, you know, fist, virtual fist bumps and we help each other. We help each other. And then I'm also really helping providers and practitioners who are trying to navigate through um, busting out a diet culture and how to support um, BIPOC patients through that in in a very um, white dominant um, solar system. So it's about community. It's about, and it's so much easier now, right? I always say, I wish I had, you know, retired from dieting 20 years ago. The community wasn't there to support me. The community wasn't there to support me. The other day I said, um, you know, I wish, uh, I I said to myself, you know, if I had gotten married um, when I was still wrapped up in diet culture, I'm not sure that I would be living now because I would have done everything possible to um, stay thin. And, And there was no community to help me out of that. And now, you know, they're glorious women of size um, on social media, just, you know, in, in mentor groups, in masterminds, in certification programs, doing webinars, doing seminars, doing trainings, you know, writing books on podcasts, on TV, just advocating for this. So it's about community. Yeah, we do have more easily accessible free resources, right? That's the key. And if I'm circling back to kind of this financial privilege or food accessibility related to intuitive eating, for parents, I think, you know, if you're coming from a place of privilege to better support your children and their community, it's recognizing that 
not everyone has equal access. And so if we're talking about, again, this concept of listening to your body, what if some kids are going to school and living off of that school lunch and that's it, right? They didn't eat breakfast. And so listening to your body, it's like, well, you're going into that meal ravenous and now I want to eat six portions of that and I can't even. So I'm not leaving the meal satisfied. I'm not feeling my fullness. I'm so disconnected from these signals because I don't have the same privilege or access that someone else does, right? And so this is this important concept I wanted to bring into this myth, which is that this is a concept that everyone can practice. And the reality is, is it's not. But as parents, it is our responsibility to bring awareness and to provide our kids with education of saying like, this is a privilege. And so you get the privilege to listen to your body. But let's talk about other kids, other other situations where they don't have the same privilege that you have. And how do you feel about that, right? What What else do you want to know about that so that you could ultimately grow up to be a more aware human and not be so ignorant, right? Right. I think, I think I'll, I'll start where I, I'll, I'll say where I started. A year ago, this would have been much more difficult. You know, what we're seeing now are, are these tremendous food, I mean, these tremendous food lines, you know, and they're, they're everywhere. They're, they, there was one the other day that was wrapping around San Diego Stadium, literally thousands of people waiting in their cars. You know, they're at my church, they're at my community center, they're at the YMCA, they're at, you know, every touch point. When they go to the grocery store, when you're checking out at the grocery store, the, the checker may say to you, would you like to donate $5 to the local food distribution program? You can do it as you're paying with your ATM. You know, in some cases, the grocery stores have a display of groceries there that they're giving away to families. Those are visual cues and those are learning lessons that we are seeing again and again and again. So I would, um, as a parent, I think I would point those particular um, messages out. I get um, a direct mail piece every day from Salvation Army, from Feeding San Diego, from the veterans, every, you know, these pieces of mail saying, you know what $5 could do? Do you know what $40 could do? These are visual, uh, visual aids. These are learning uh, opportunities for you to share with your children. I want to... I want to throw in a protection for all the fat kids out there, basically, that, yeah, that I don't want parents to take what you're hearing and now shame your children of like, why are you eating all that? We have all this access to food. You should be saving food for the kids starving, you know, wherever. Well, that goes against every intuitive eating protocol, right? right? Right. And um, 
I think I would rather see those parents as they are collecting uh, toys that are no longer needed, collecting uh, clothes that are no longer needed, um, and giving them to a, a charity. Take the children with you. You know, if you are um, shopping, um, you know, pick up a couple cans of of this or that. Pick up a bag of rice or a bag of beans or or and and say we're going to get this and we're going to donate these. The child may ask, "What's what is that? What does that mean?" Or tell you know what does that mean? And that offers the opportunity to have a conversation about what these organizations are doing and how these organizations are helping and who they're helping. They may not be helping the um, the inner city child who, um, because school is now virtual, is missing that lunch, which may be the case, but it may be the, the neighbor across the street who those parents have either had their work life tremendously shifted because only one of them is able to continue to work from home or one of them is an essential worker and is putting their lives and their health in danger as they continue to um, go out to work. Um, they're having food insecurity as well. So that opens up the opportunity to have that conversation and to build a foundation for future conversations you're talking about community, but this is, you know, we're talking about community ultimately for adults or older kids. And so having this conversation in a kid-friendly manner or involving the kids, let's go through your toys, let's go through your clothes, let's donate. How do you feel about that? Right? Really involving your kid and making it more than a once a year thing, making it more than just Thanksgiving, we go to the food bank, right? Or over, you know, the end of the year holidays, we're donating our time. Like this can be something to build more awareness. But kids learn through action. They learn through practice. They learn through repetition, similar to us. Right, right? exactly. And so having right. them, I love that idea, like having them be a part of it so that it provokes their minds and that conversation is is super essential in um, supporting this change. And there are lots of messages around and once you're attuned to them, then you, you know, there are billboards all over the city that say, thank you to essential workers. That's a great opportunity to have a conversation with a child about what is an essential worker and, and how we need to support those essential workers, right? You know, we see it at the grocery store. We see it um, on the news. We see it on television. We see stories, you know, build a nice little um, uh, a compassion hut, I'm gonna call it. Build a compassion hut and add, you know, elements to it, bricks and mortar and, you know, uh, to build a really solid um, spirit in these children of empathy and compassion. I like this concept of community because intuitive eating is individualistic. And this concept of feeding one another and taking care of one another is really this concept of healing one's relationship with food. Everyone needs to have 
access to food. You're right. Going back to your original points about it being about survivalism and also caretaking for one another. I think that dieting is a privilege and healing from dieting is a privilege and intuitive eating is a privilege. And it's an individual journey. And it's obviously very important, but also making sure that we have this community lens of making sure everyone is fed and everyone has access to food is really the the end goal of healing this disorder relationship with food in our society. Equal access to healthcare. Like this, we could literally go on this long tangent, which is ultimately what every myth in this season is coming back to that like, there is not enough equity. Yeah. Um, there, These myths are wrapped in privilege. And so, um, yeah, I think it's just extremely important topics to talk about and just bring more awareness to. And what I find, you know, with adults is a lot of them say, well, I didn't know. Well, I was unaware. Well, nobody told me, or I never knew that. And I think we have an opportunity with children to have them lift up their heads. You know, my students, I I provoke them to watch and report on the news every week um, because I want for them to lift up their heads um, from their phones, from their lives, from their privilege, from their isolation, from their shelter, you know, and I say, don't come in my classroom unless you can tell me what's happening on the federal level, state level, local level, where the stock market ended up, what the weather's going to be like, and did the Lakers win last night? Don't come in my classroom unless you can tell me. <laughs> and, and the thing Good is, for you. Yeah. you know, the students were like, I've never watched the news like that before. I never, you know... I never knew that that Google is trying to take over the world, you know? So I think we can build that. We can build a different mentality with our children. And it's cert- it, it can be knowledgeable, certainly, but it can also be compassionate and it definitely needs to be empathetic. So I think one of the things that I'm really, really, really watching is there's two big things I'm watching. One is the dissemination of the vaccine for the virus. Um, As a communications instructor, you know, I'm telling my students, this is the biggest thing that the nation has ever done. This is bigger than, you know, the war responses of World War I and World War II. This is bigger than post 9-11. This is the biggest task this nation has done. Let's watch how this is done. Let's watch who is prioritized. Let's watch why. Let's talk about why. Um, And then also, I think with the transition of the administration, how things are happening with, um, you know, immigrant children in cages and asylum and healthcare and, schools there's going to be a tremendous shift there so let's let's watch all that because we're we're flexing we're going to be flexing our empathy muscle this is so helpful thank you so much for helping us bust this myth today i hope it really helps people kind of understand how we oversimplify this concept of intuitive eating when it is a very complex concept 
Yeah, yeah. And I think now is like the intuitive eating Olympics. What we're seeing right now is the intuitive eating Olympics. Yes. I appreciate you coming on, Shelby. And I want to leave space for you to tell our listeners where they can find you and learn more about you. Well, they certainly can find me on Instagram. My handle is fit, flexible, and fluid. So that we are fit of mind and body, that we are fluid of systems and ideology, and that we are flexible as we continue to evolve through both our anti-dieting journey and our uh, social justice journey. Um, I'll be doing some courses after the beginning of the year. Um, and I'm also a boundary bish because, you know, I've lived on the other side of dealing with the weight stigmatizer um, who pounded these messages in my head as a child that took me thousands of dollars of healthcare therapy and a lot of motivation, prayer, um, and just uh, revenge to get over. Well, thank you, Shelby. We appreciate you coming on. My pleasure. Thank you so much. I'll be back to bust a myth anytime. That is a wrap on this episode of the Mythbuster series, and we hope this information provides you with a more critical lens when you hear mainstream diet culture messaging. Please reach out to the person interviewed to connect with them in the ways they listed, or you can check out our social media pages at Mom Jeans the Podcast for details on the episode and to find our guests' information. And if you love the episode, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes and recommend this episode to a friend. Sending you the inner strength to accept your jeans with a G and wear the jeans with a J. Bye. This episode of Mom Jeans was produced and edited by Rachel Coleman and Tina LaBoy. Just a reminder, this episode is not a substitute for therapeutic counsel or nutrition advice. Thank you to Jerry DePizzo for the music production. You can find episode information and show notes at www.momjeansthepodcast.com. Follow us on Instagram at momjeansthepodcast and join the Mom Jeans the Podcast Facebook group to find a community of mamas learning to love their bodies and discussing the episodes. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Mom Jeans. See you next time.